I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every single day. These are the stories of the killers and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. On the 3rd of April 2011 in Velkom, police recovered a vehicle belonging to a young local man named Michael van Eck. Michael hadn't come home the previous night after leaving to go on a blind date at a local graveyard. He'd met his date on a chat site. They flirted back and forth and arranged to meet face to face. But little did Michael know, it was his face that she was after. My name is Paul Vivian Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss the reality behind crime on the continent is Jared Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Hello, Gerard. Hi, Paul. So today we are talking about violent fantasy and we're going to be talking about a particular case which is very interesting and very macabre um, and very disturbing. Um, but first of all, to kick off the conversation, let's talk a little bit about kind of fantasy broadly and what fantasy means in the world of the killer and how it fits into the world of the killer. Um, what is a, what is fantasy? How do we understand fantasy from a, from a psychological point of view? So fantasy is an important thing in every person's lives. We all have fantasies. Um, we all have dreams. I mean, literally, while we sleep, we have dreams. We fantasize, you know, what would, it, what would it be like if we won the lottery one day or to date this person? So it's a normal way that we explore things and possibilities in our daily lives. Um, gives, as I said, it, we, we are, it gives us aspirations of something to achieve. And of course, whenever we engage in sexual behavior, particularly people masturbating, you're fantasizing. You have a sexual fantasy that you're creating in your mind that kind of spurs on that, that sexual behavior. So it's part of normal day life. We all do it. Um, but then you get people who have sort of more of your deviant fantasies in the sense that they perhaps involve violent violent aspects, mm. uh, non-consensual aspects, whether it be sexual, sexually non-consenting um, things. And we often find with your more psychologically motivated crimes, which is your serial murderers, your pedophiles, serial rapists, your you know, people who commit other sort of bizarre murders, there's usually some underlying fantasy that's, that's guiding what they do, that's scripting what they do. And we, that's why we often say that your serial murderers, for example, and serial rapists commit their crimes in a, in a similar fashion because they have this underlying fantasy which becomes then, you know, the kind of blueprint for what they then want to act out with every single victim. And some people say that, of course, in your fantasy world, you can sketch everything exactly the way you want it to happen. Mm. But in reality, things don't work that way. You can't find the victim that looks exactly like the victim that you'd like to choose, so you settle. Mm. Uh, the victim doesn't always behave the way that you want them to behave, so you have to adjust a little bit. Um, and that's, you know, people, some people say the theory is that the, the suspect's trying to recreate the perfect fantasy. Mm. Does that mean he would stop if they ever did that? No, I don't think so. They, they would just continue to try and do it. So, again, that becomes the blueprint. It develops over many, many years. Often these things, specifically violent fantasies, start in, in childhood. 
And we sometimes we see them very clearly if you look at, for example, sadistic offenders, those that enjoy torturing their victims, and often that torturing comes with a sexual arousal if it's a sexually sadistic uh, offender. And that um, often becomes very well and clearly documented. If you to ask a sadist about their fantasies, if they're going to be honest with you, they will have them in the down to the smallest minutiae in detail. Mm. Um, other people, we sometimes find that they, they, they have difficulty verbalizing their fantasies. It's there, but they themselves struggle to put it into words. And mm. like I said, your sadist, sadist will always be the one who's very clear. And sometimes a sadist even writes them writes about them in their diaries. There was the um, the uh, Charles Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, which are quite well-known mm. serial murders in the U.S. And I think it was Leonard Lake who made a video prior to them sadistically kill, you know, kidnapping and torturing some of their victims. He made a video about, this is what I want to do one day. And I think that video is probably available on YouTube. I remember seeing it when I went uh, mm. attended a lecture by very well-known, now deceased FBI profiler, Roy Hazelwood, who, who discussed, did a case study on that particular case and showed that video. And so the, the sadistic ones tend to be very, very well written out. The, the very well-known uh, BTK serial murderer in the United States, Dennis Rader, I think it was in Wichita, mm. uh, Wisconsin. And I mean, he'd drawn sketches of what he wants to do to his victims. And if you look at his crime scenes, um, which I've seen for the fortune to see some of the sketches and the pictures of the crime scenes, you can see he was recreating what he had drawn. Yeah. Um, the, the, what's interesting is that, um, I mean, we've spoken about the fact that, you know, one of the things that people don't consider necessarily about a serial killer is that 99% of the time a serial killer is not a serial killer in their daily life because they're going about yeah. their daily lives. It is those those moments in their life where they enact these fantasies that they kind of actively become the, that serial killer um, mm. um, persona comes to the fore, to the forefront. But, uh, the, you know, the fantasy then is that, is that underlying element of, of the killer that is there consistently. Mm. So this mm. is something that is um, a part of that person's personality mm. throughout. The, so that is where you see yeah. and, that and, the serial killer exists within the personality, within yeah. the kind of fantasy world of these and I always say, like, we all, like, let's say you've had a very bad day or, or you have a horrible boss that you really hate. We all fantasize about, oh, I'd love to punch that guy because he's such an idiot. And that's often an important way that I we... I can give you so many examples. <laughs> that we kind of allow ourselves in a safe environment to actually express things that we would never do in the real life and can yeah. lead to some kind of resolving of that kind of anger. Uh, but unfortunately for these guys, this fantasy does not become the solution. It it's almost like the stepping stone. Yes. And at some point they want to act it out. And we slowly see them acting it out, maybe with their consensual sexual partners. Sure. Um, tying them. If you're, for example, if you're, a, I always say, if you're the guy who, you know, ends up rape, kidnapping a, high, a high hitchhiker, taking them to a deserted place, torturing them and killing them, um, you know, you might start out with a little bit of S&M with your sexual partner yeah. and how far they'll allow you to go. But again, that will never satisfy you 100%. And then you yeah. kind of eventually will step into what you really want to do. So you often see those little elements of the trial runs with consensual yeah. partners and then non-consensual partners pushing that boundary until they finally start to act yeah. out. And these often in reaction to what's happened to them when they're young. So you might get a guy who's targeting um, elderly people in old age homes Maybe for him, he was abused by an elderly person when he was younger. There's sometimes that kind of a historical link between what happened to them and what they're going to do to other people. An interesting example of that, because, again, it's important for people to understand that fantasy is a very normal part of everyone's lives. Absolutely. We're talking about when the fantasy starts going into that sadistic dark place. And the evolution of the fantasy can be very interesting. I mean, if a recent case, the recent um, captured in America, the, the Golden State Killer, um, I know that he started as a petty thief um, and committed 200 uh, crimes breaking into houses mm. and what they started how they start how they 
drew a drew consistency between those crime scenes was that he was taking particular items. He mm. would start to take. He started off by taking maybe items of underwear mm. or, or a single piece of jewelry. So he would take specific kind of trophies from each scene, and then he evolved into the into a rapist, mm. um, and then committed a series of rape of, rapes over a number of years, and then eventually evolved to the murder, mm. uh, to murdering people. So a very good example, and, and only in in you know in recent years when they reopened the case did they did they then link the the murder cases to the rape cases and then back to the the petty crime mm. cases and there you see that kind of you know the fantasy evolving as his confidence yeah. as a criminal evolves and i assume as his inability to control those fantasies mm. yeah so often as, as they, well. they would say as people get more stressed out by life whether it be because of their relationship not going well financial reasons etc the fantasy sometimes becomes more prominent it becomes mm-hmm. a place where they are in control of things which is why they kind of shift into that sort of world okay. when their life is falling apart and then they go and act out these yeah. types of behaviors and then that sometimes leads to some equilibrium and they carry on with their normal life um, and then eventually like I said they get these urges to act out the fantasy again let's uh, let's then get into our case study today because this is a very um Again, a very interesting local case, um, and definitely you see some of these kind of um, sadistic fantasies being expressed mm. in the course of the case. So set the scene for us. So this is now the small town of Velkom, um, which is the Afrikaans word for welcome, uh, just spelled with a K. And um, how can I put it? Not much reason to go to Velkom. It's a really <laughs> tiny little mining town in the Sorry, Velkom. Yeah, it's tiny little mining town in, in the Free State, very sort of historically Afrikaans, so very sort of conservative, you know. You know, if you're the kind of kid who looks a little bit different or listens to different music at high school, mm. that would be probably very difficult for you. Sure. Um, you but know, there's a wimpy, at least. A, a I'm wimpy. sure there's a wimpy and a spur, Gerard. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> National monuments in yeah. South Africa. So, you know, as I said, a very Afrikaans, cons- Calvinistic, conservative. You don't mm. look different. You don't be different. If you are, life is not good for you. You play rugby, not soccer. Yes. Um, and that's the kind of mining town environment that, that you know, is typical of maybe of those little well, types. Where a lot, a lot of us will be familiar with that environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically what happened in this particular case is on about the 3rd of April 2011, um, police recovered a vehicle belonging to a young man called Michael van Eck. And I think he was in his, his early 20s, if I recall correctly. Okay. And he had not returned home the previous evening to his parents' house after he'd been out on a date. And again, very typical, healthy, athletic-looking Afrikaans boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he actually had a blind date the night before, um, and he was supposed that he and he's supposed to meet a local girl at the local graveyard. Now, for most of us, we might say, "Well, that's a bit of a bizarre place to meet someone." Um, you know, again, small town, not many places. And actually, it's, it, when I went to the graveyard, it's actually quite a beautiful environment. Out, okay. You know, it's kind of actually quite nice if it wasn't for the fact that it's a graveyard. Yeah, but small towns, kids are a bit odd. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem totally absurd. Yeah. And he basically met her on a sort of cell phone chat site. I don't even think it exists anymore. I remember this is 2011, called To Go, to number two, and then G-O. Okay. And essentially, kind of, if you look at the chats, it was, it was basically a hookup for sex, you know, if you look at how the chat went. Sure. And most young men probably wouldn't say no to that. Yeah. Um, and they arranged to meet actually face-to-face on the 2nd of April at 9 o'clock at this particular uh, graveyard. So there'd been like chats back and forth. Um, so as I said, the graveyard itself is a, is a little bit outside the town, um, in sort of open sort of uh, area. And like I said, actually fairly, fairly nice for a graveyard. Um, and essentially, he arrives, 
um, at this particular place. They have a little chat. She's got a picnic blanket out there with a female suspect who had lured him. <clears throat> and um, there's a picnic blanket, you know, a couple glasses, items, him thinking he's going to have a nice romantic uh, date. At the no, we must underline the fact that this is not, there's no warning bells going off here. It's a yep. woman, you know what I mean? You're going on a date. It's a dating service, which is friends and, you know, buddies probably use. So there's absolutely no no kind of preemptive warning signs here that he's stepping into a dodgy situation. Not at all. So basically, they're sitting on the picnic blanket having a chit-chat, and he hears something rustling behind them, and which was the male suspect, who then came out, started attacking him, um, was struggling. So the male suspect then called the female suspect, Shanae, and said, help. And then she helped stabbing him. And they stabbed him multiple times, literally right there at the entrance to the, to the graveyard. Um, so it was already a very gruesome death. I mean, this guy was fighting for his life. It didn't. It's not you know one stab and you fall down and you die like it is on TV. Um, and the two of them sort of overpowered him. Then um, once he was dead, they he, she remember so she did a lot of yeah. this work. She removed his head. The male accused cut off the foot, right arm, and right hand, and then took some of those body parts with him later. But then what they did with the remains of the body is about 100 meters away from where they killed him is what they call the Jewish side of the cemetery, which obviously where a lot of the the Jewish people have their their burial site. And right next to those sort of graves, if you look at the crime scene pictures, they buried his remains in a shallow grave. Um, Literally, they dug out with some spoons and whatever items they had with them. And and we'll put that, we'll put an image of the actual um, burial site up online as well. Um, and kind of buried him in a very shallow grave, not particularly well covered, covered up with grass. I can, yeah, I mean, very loosely covered with grass, but not something that you would necessarily, at first glance, think that there were remains there. Yeah, in fact, even the police dog missed it. The oh, really? sniffer dog, yeah, at first, yeah. Missed okay, it. and we have some of the best sniffer dogs in the world, again, as yeah. we've discussed in previous episodes. So, And then they, so what they didn't leave behind, they took with them back to their, back to their little flat where they stayed. Now, they'd walked all the way. It's about two point something kilometers, uh, if I recall correctly. Um, they walked there, but then they took his car and transported themselves back to the house. Just, you know, obviously took out all the items that they wanted to keep. And then they left the car where it was discovered, which I think was near a taxi rank. Okay. And actually, they'd left the car with the keys in the engine, hoping that someone would steal it. We should, of course, perhaps detract the attention yes. from them that, are, you know, maybe thinking it's a hijacking, etc. Yeah. And actually, when the police found the car, someone was sitting in the car trying to start it to kind of um, okay. co-opt it. If I okay, good. Well done, idea. South Africa, for living up to expectation. the expectation of the killer. Leave, leave cars with a key and it will get taken. Um, all right. So let, let's take a pause there. So um, the car's been found. They've now... Shallow, they've buried the parts of the body at the site. We'll come back in the second segment and we'll talk a little bit about where the fantasy started, how the fantasy evolved, what the fantasy looked like. And also I'm interested to find out about how the coming together of two minds can, can, um, can ignite fantasy mm-hmm. and can really enable it. So uh, please do uh, search for us on YouTube, Profiler Africa, and do subscribe to the page on YouTube, please. And uh, you can also listen to us, of course, on uh, Spotify, on SoundCloud, and on iTunes as a podcast. And our Twitter handle and uh, Instagram handle, at Profiler Africa. Do go online and check out the Facebook group and follow us on Facebook as well.
South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious to reveal the story behind serious crime on the continent. And joining me is Jared Lovaskachny, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section. And, of course, our resident profiler. We are discussing violent fantasy today, and we're discussing a particular Velcom murder case. Um, before the break, we uh, spoke about, you know, the set the scene for the crime. A young man, Michael Fennec, meets up with a young woman on a, uh, what's a, a hookup, essentially, a first date, and um, is subsequently murdered by this young lady and, and another gentleman. Parts of the body buried in, buried in a shallow grave, parts of the body removed. Where do we go from there, Gerard? Yeah, well, an interesting little thing, and, just, and it almost gives you this parallel of what's going on in their minds, is that the day after this gruesome murder, these two, the two suspects, um, Martins, um, from Mervyn, Sinead from Newton, uh, got engaged, which, you know, okay. if you look at some of the other things we'll discuss, it's, it's almost difficult to understand how they have this horrible, gruesome crime and these fantasies, yet at the same time, they're sort of almost like, if you block that out, the stuff that they're talking about is like normal, happy, mm. you know, young lovers in love kind of stuff. Um, How much would this maybe have then in their minds contributed to the, you know, the securing of this kind of love contract? I mean, surely the, the engagement is happening so close to the murder for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think it would be naive to say that there perhaps is not some symbolic or some yes, s- reference yes, yes, or, yes. Um, reason for that. Yeah. Um, we do know that they would engage in certain rituals some people might say they're, they're satanic rituals, but they aren't satanic rituals, but some kind of rituals that they, they developed for themselves almost yeah. like as bonding experiences. Yeah. Let's talk about them as an indivi- and individuals and what their individual fantasies looked mm. like and how those fantasies then merged. Mm. So essentially, um, Shanae had, from a young age, had this fantasy about wanting to kill, um, no, about wanting to skin someone, a human being. Okay. Um, and I mean, actually, that's a very specific thing. Very specific. And as a child, she actually would skin some of the animals that her father had, had shot. Okay. Um, so, so she kind of, again, this trial run, practicing sure. it out. You have this fantasy from a young age, but you you can't go out and kill someone to do the skinning, so you, you focus on what you can. Yes. Like if, if the dogs had killed an animal that's straight onto their property, she would sort of skin that. So that's I want, Here I want to also <clears throat> underline the fact that that's not necessarily a clear warning sign that somebody's going to grow up to be a killer necessarily. It's It's not... Totally consistent across serial killers, is what I'm saying. Yeah, look, I mean, it's not, not all serial killers start off by yeah. skinning animals or killing animals. Yeah. Um, I do think if your child is skinning animals, you might want you to have that worry. checked out. No, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I'm not but suggesting you should. But, but not all serial murders have that no, background. No, no, no. It, it's just one of those things which every, I think has become this misconception, thanks to popular media, Absolutely. that serial killers will will uh, demonstrate certain similar yeah. behaviors they'll wet their beds, through their set revolution. Things on fire and skin out they were raped snow. when they were kids, etc., yeah. etc. Et but these, this is not necessarily the truth. Yeah, okay, carry on. And like I said, so she first, first felt that thrill, sort of a, the sensation when she skinned, skinned a rabbit that her father shot. Um, so we have this f- from an early age. Um, and then the male accused, um, Martin Sonamavra, was about um, killing someone. That was his fantasy, just the killing of a person. Okay. So I, as I of, I've often said, it was kind of a match made in hell. Yeah. Because she didn't really want to kill. Yeah. But she wanted to skin. But obviously yeah. that process would involve someone dying usually. And he wanted to kill. So they, again, they, 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 they just the, the, the two fantasies complemented each yeah. other. And we've seen this in examples all over <clears throat> the world, whether it's... Fred and Rosemary West or the Moors murderers also in the UK mm. where um, the, the example you used earlier the, um, the 
the torturers in 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 California, Ing and Leonard Lake and Charles Ing. Yeah, um, this is these are very clear examples of where two troubled individuals come together, and that becomes a further ignition to this kind of. Yeah, and, and thankfully that's incredibly rare that we get for these sure. two people finding each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, how did we get to the point where they decided to enact, to, to act out these fantasies? So they had actually um, engaged in trial runs, which is what we see fairly common in, in our serials, is that okay. before they do the final type of crime, they test it out in little, little degrees. They try out certain aspects of it, and they creep slowly towards doing the full and final crime. So we know that on the 8th of March, uh, which is about a month or so before this uh, incident on 2011, <clears throat> at about... 13 minutes to 8 in the evening. We know that because it was photographs on her cell phone. They had um, skinned a cat. Okay. But they got skinned it. Um, he killed it. She skinned it. And she actually said it was horrible for her to watch how the male suspect was stabbing the cat. And the cries of pain bothered her. Okay. But, you know, that was his thing. Yeah. So she wanted to respect that that's his fantasy. And then she then skinned the cat which is which is her fantasy, and there's you know photo, it's again these this juxtaposition. There's a photograph of her sitting folded legged in with pajamas with this little kitten, sitting there as if you know like a happy little kitten. And the mm. next thing you see is this cat nailed to a homemade cross, and then the cat skinned. Um, yeah. So there's again this this whole thing. So after they'd done that, and I think they actually skinned two cats. Then then they kind of wanted to move on to something bigger, which was a dog. They had, had planned to go to a local animal shelter. However, she backed out, and this is, again, this irony, but she said she felt sorry for the dog, that they couldn't bring home this dog from a shelter who's going to expect to have a loving home, and then they're going to do this to it. Uh, so they decided to skip the dog level and go onto humans, and so they originally drove around trying to find a victim. Okay, so let's underline this thing. Yeah. So they felt too, they, they, they had too much guilt about killing a dog, so yeah. they were like, let's just go straight to people. Yeah. Okay, that, again... Not logic that I think most of us would relate to. Um, Okay. (laughs) And then so they drove around trying to find victims, didn't work, and that's when they decided to try the chat room method of luring, and that's how Michael von Eck was was ultimately lured. And then you start to see kind of the, the, again, you talk about the planning of the likes of a BTK, and you start to see in the the evidence that was gathered um, examples of, of this. I mean, this handwritten letter where, yeah. where she's made a list of things that she's going to, uh, that she needs for the day. So a needle, stitching needle, surgical, menorah blades, wax white candles, black bags, wet wipes. And then to take with, she's listed a black dress, a costume, gut, a box, rocks, pins, nails, hammer, rope. So very premeditated, very much. How much How much satisfaction is there for these types of criminals in the planning phase? This is obviously another aspect of them satisfying this fantasy yeah. and because they get to pre-live it almost. And, and Yep. I mean, the, definitely. I think this is not just the, the logistics of, of what we're going to do. It's part of the whole process, the excitement, the, the stepping slowly into that thing so that when you get the victim, it's not the, the fantasy that doesn't start once you've got that victim. Yeah. Like you said, it's a pre-planning. And then, of course, the photos that they took, because they photographed, as you'll see discussed yes. in a moment, them skinning, um, in the process of skinning Michael von Eck, sure. uh, the, the cat, like I said a moment ago, and they yeah. kept those. So that, again, yeah. is this to relive? Yeah. You know, did they keep? They kept items belonging to, to the victim, again, not items of significant value, um, that might be used, to, you know, to enrich themselves. A good collection of of books found of of um, the, you know, books of, uh, relating to serial murder were found in in the suspect's home. 
uh, Lady Killers, Serial Killers, The Night Stalker, The Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez, yeah, The so World's Most Infamous Murders. So an informing mm-hmm. the fantasy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so like you said, they've they read books about this type of stuff, about serial murderers, about serial murderers who'd skinned other victims. She had a little homemade business card, you know, South African Department of Forensic Psychology with her name. You know, as and the title is forensic psychologist. Um, we mm-hmm. saw, for example, the stuff that she and a lot of the stuff is what she had on her phone and her computer. You know, she downloaded books about profiling. You know, by some very well-known people. That were, you know, John Douglas' book, Anatomy of Motive, um, okay. Mapping Murder, which is by well-known David Cantor, well-known okay. British pro, uh, profiler, and profiling the criminal mind. So what you're saying was she was finding some good, good material. <laughs> some good material. Okay. You know, so researching this, and and, and they, for example, they loved watching Dexter, that that television program, which is about American serial okay. murderer who's actually a bloodstain pattern analyst okay. for the police, and they actually said that watching that show kind of normalized their behavior for them. Because they said, okay. well, here's a, a show which is very popular about a guy who's, who's actually just killing people. Yeah. And that kind of helped, in their little world, justify what they did. Sure. Uh, also, examples of um, d- dead body pictures of, of, of the murder, the bodies of... Mutilated um, people, yeah, um, etc. their phone, et I mean, then they also, she, she was kind of an artist uh, of, her, of her own design. And she had written little stories. And, I mean, one of the stories is the, called The Seven Deadly Sins. And it starts off by saying, I will tear their faces off to see their truth. Now, you wonder, she skinned the person's face off, as we'll get into in a moment. Yeah. Then she wrote this little story, um, two-page handwritten story. Um, sort of reads, at one point it says, I remember that I had some old material in the back of my cupboard. I think it's called skin. So since I had some time to spare, I stitched some skin together, forming a suit. And then it goes on in the little story about how she then puts the suit on and it becomes her. Okay. She becomes, it, it kind of molds with her body. And now. here we could reference very directly the movie The Silence of the Lambs. Because, Absolutely. of course, um, Buffalo Bill in that film was was uh, creating a, a, a human skin suit. Yeah, yeah. Um, any suggestion that you know that she took that as a reference or was inspired by that at all? Not that I saw. Um, okay. I don't know if we searched further in the sure, material sure. that she looked at that might have popped up. And I mean, she'd even drawn a picture because uh, I said she was an, an artist of sort. Sure. Drawn a picture where it looks like a female, eyes blank, yeah. and then her lips stitched together. And that's yeah. kind of what they did. If you look when after they skinned Michael's face off, yeah. if you look at the picture, which we won't obviously show, no. you know, obviously there's a blank space where the eyes were and the lips are stitched together. But so she's again, abso- those lips have been absolutely <coughs> stitched as in a yeah, sketch. So. so it's kind of, you know, life imitating art. Well, again, absolutely. the fantasy preceding yeah. what the person then wants to act out. Okay, let's talk to uh, talk about how these guys were then identified and yeah. how they, you know, obviously there was a concern that Michael was missing, his car yeah. was found. How did they get to the suspects? In, in essence, it was good, plain, old-fashioned police work. They then started to track Michael's phone to see who he'd been in contact with. Uh, I think the mother knew that he'd been out uh, on, a, on a date the night before. Um, so then through obviously getting cell phone records, they then contacted the number, which it appears she had been, who had been contacting him for, for possibly for the date. And I think the police phoned saying, listen, a friend of yours is injured. They're at the hospital. Can you come to the hospital now? And when they got there, the police arrested them. Now, they said that they, when I interviewed Martin's um, pre-trial um, to, to, to compile a report, he said, no, they knew it was the cops phoning, uh, but they just always said that if the cops confront them, they'll, they'll hand themselves over and, and admit to what they've done. Okay. Now, you know, whichever is the truth. I mean, yeah, sure. But the cops did that, and it worked, and they then arrested them. And from the start, they pretty much 
were cooperating as to and, and, and saying what they'd done. They didn't try, try to sort of cover it up and, and hide it, really. Okay. So they've identified the, the, the potential suspects. What do they discover? Yeah, so then, again, I, I've spoken about this in previous episodes, they would ask to do a pointing out, which is when yes. the offender takes a person with no knowledge about the case and shows them what where everything played out. Sure. Um, they pointed out, obviously, the, the graveyard where the body was buried, uh, and, of course, in their back garden, what they'd done after they'd skinned the face the following day after the murder, they'd put the remainders in, um, um, buried them in, in their back garden. So it okay. was the skull that was left behind. The okay. face was kept in the fridge. Okay. It was the skull, um, the, the, the foot, the hand, the leg, etc., the clothing, the cell phone, were all buried right in the back garden of the little flat where they stayed, which I see I see now in my notes was four, about 4.8 kilometers from the actual murder scene. Okay. Um, and they were pointed out by the suspect, um, obviously within a day or so of, of them being arrested. I mean, it's got to be an extraordinarily um, odd thing to discover a skinned face well, in a refrigerator. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to the police who were involved um, in this, and you know, they didn't exactly tell the cops what was. They just said, "Look, oh, there's something in the fridge. You should check out." And you know, obviously, the cops went, opened it up, and came across this very gruesome face. Because at that mm. point, they had no idea that. Yeah. This type of murder had been committed. And uh, I think a lot of the people who were involved have, have experienced a lot of trauma as a result of, of this particular case. Um, yeah, it's very gruesome nature. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, to be honest, looking at the image of a skinned face, and I've, I've never seen an actual skinned face before, it's very easy to kind of disassociate, to not... It doesn't... It, it, it's, it's stripped of its kind of human quality. So it doesn't... Mm. I find it an odd thing looking at this image because I'm looking at a skinned face, but I don't feel totally repulsed by it because mm. it doesn't seem real for some reason. Yep. You know? Um, but I guess it's a different thing when you're actually picking it out of a refrigerator. Um, we'll be back in a little while, of course. Please do um, log on to our YouTube page, um, search Profiler Africa on YouTube, and please do subscribe. Um, we're available as a podcast, of course, on iTunes, on Spotify, and on SoundCloud. And our social media handle is at Profiler Africa. So do look out for us on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Seven people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. Today, we are discussing uh, violent fantasy and a particular murder case in Valcom, in which uh, a young lady by the name of Shone van Heerden and Martins van der Merwe um, abducted, murdered, and skinned um, a young man by the name of Michael van Eck. Jared, tell us about you know your first impressions of these two. My first introduction to these people was through the murder. So I had seen sure. the crime scene pictures, heard what, the, what they'd done, etc. And then as the trial came closer, I was asked to do an assessment of both to, to testify court later. Um, so I managed to meet with Martins, had a two, two or three hour interview with him. Nice guy. Um, sure. You know, he wasn't some TV-like, aggressive, sadistic, 
evil individual, mm. um, very polite, very normal speaking. Um, did have a documented history of mental illness. Absolutely. So he did was diagnosed for many years uh, with schizophrenia. Okay. That we didn't dispute that. This was preceding the crime. It wasn't as if they were trying to drum up with an excuse to get out of jail type of thing. Um, so he had a long-standing history of, with schizophrenia, uh, auditory, visual hallucinations. He would see little dragon-type things, etc. Can we all talk a little bit about schizophrenia here? Because it's one of those um, kind of mental conditions that does come up quite often in, in serial crime cases. What are what are some of the issues around schizophrenia that we need to kind of that can lead people to these kinds of behaviours? Yeah. Yeah, so look, I mean, the majority of our serial murderers were found fit to stand trial, which means they did not have a mental illness that caused the crimes. Okay. Um, okay. So, but essentially, what is schizophrenia? Because a lot of people think schizophrenia is multiple personalities. Yes, it, yes, is, yes. it is not. Those are two completely separate diagnoses okay. um, completely. Okay. Uh, multiple personalities um, used to be called multiple personality disorder, okay. and then they changed it a few years ago to, to dissociative identity disorder. Okay. Completely separate from schizophrenia. Um, so schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder. Um, essentially, it's characterized by hallucinations. Now, a hallucination is something, for example, like you hear voices or sounds that are not really there, or, or you see things that are not really there. You can also smell and hear, taste, touch, in you know, all your senses. So a hallucination can be experienced in any one of your, your five senses. But in schizophrenia, it's typically going to be you're hearing, hearing things okay. and seeing things that are not actually there. Okay. Um, and that's, a, that's sort of the main crux. And often accompanying that with, with what we call delusions, which are unusual thoughts, uh, strange beliefs, um, sometimes very bizarre, like, for example, aliens are controlling my mind. Okay. It's typically a delusional thought that you get with, say, someone who has schizophrenia. Or people are putting thoughts into my head or sure. extracting thoughts out of my head. Okay. Um, uh, or people are talking about me, which would be, again, the auditory hallucination. So it's hallucinations and delusions are kind of the stock standard thing with schizophrenia. Okay. Um, and if it's not due to drugs, obviously, then you wouldn't classify it as schizophrenia. If the person was, for example, taking LSD and experiencing that, sure. you'd want to rule out, is there, for example, a brain tumor, which is pressing on a part of the brain, which is causing the person to hear or see things that are not there, okay. or other explana- medical explanations for it. And once you've ruled those out, you know, you, you're dealing with schizophrenia, which would then have to be treated with medication. And it would be a lifelong thing. You you don't sure. cure schizophrenia. Okay. You control the symptoms okay. by medication. And 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 a well-managed schizophrenic is somebody who is suitable to kind of live in, you know, live in live amongst us in Absolutely. society. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I always say that the, you know, our prisons are filled with people who who are not mentally ill who've done horrible crimes sure. so we don't typically have to fear the mentally ill people yeah. fear it because they don't understand it Absolutely. and it's strange and it's weird etc yeah. and, and, and this is really an interesting aspect of this whole conversation when it comes mm-hmm. to serial killers I was discussing with you kind of off tape earlier the uh, I was watching an episode of a, a show relating to Jeffrey Dahmer and you know it's really clear how the parents there Jeffrey Dahmer's dad in particular really stayed loyal to him from a parent point of view and mm. and and what I took from 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 kind of interviews with him was that he understood that his son was mentally ill. Yeah, I mean I'd be cautious about saying the word mentally ill because okay. uh, like I said you know they don't usually don't have a diagnosable mental disorder. Okay. Now that's not to say that there's normal yeah, clearly they're not. Cause they're well, doing then psychologically that... <laughs> they behave yeah. quite radically different to the yeah, rest absolutely. of us, and so we have to understand that 
they are fundamentally different. And you've, you've said to me before that trying to compare a serial, a, a psychopath to yourself is like trying to compare yourself to a stone. Yeah, yeah. They're two fundamentally different things. So one of the things that does often pop up is the issue of a psychopath, which is a personality disorder, um, which is someone who sees the world fundamentally different to we do and often don't have the accompanying emotions and feelings and empathy that other people have. But having said that, probably 95% of psychopaths are not killing people. Yes. So that's not an explanation for serial murder, sure. although you might say a lot of serial murderers also have Most of that. them are CEOs of companies. Yeah, so. The other ones are <laughs> CEOs and successful generals and exactly. captains of industry and, and politicians. <laughs> yeah. um, so again, so mental illness doesn't really explain serial murder um, sure. in this case. So even here, Martin's schizophrenia no. isn't what caused him to do this. No. And that's also what the court found. He was sent for a lengthy observation is that he wasn't having command instructions, voices telling him, Martins, go out and kill someone. Okay. If it was, and that was truly the case, then we would say he, the mental illness is, in quote, unquote, responsible for this. He sure. should be in a mental hospital, sure. not in a prison. Okay. But again, this was hashed out um, in this case very th- at length with the court, with different psychiatrists and myself testifying. And we say, yeah, we don't dispute his schizophrenia. But we're saying that that didn't cause him to commit these crimes. Okay. Uh, that was done by Martins himself because he wanted to. Okay. Therefore, although he has the schizophrenia history and he should be treated for that, he's going to go to prison because he knew what he was doing. Sure. He had the ability to control his behavior, and he will get his schizophrenia treatment in, in prison. Yeah. So the only way that you will be treated as, as suffering from a mental illness is if you are deemed to be not in control of your actions. Yes. So... so Legally, there must be a nexus or a link between the crime and the actual mental illness. Okay. Otherwise, having a mental disorder diagnosed is a get-out-of-jail-free card for anything. Oh, I'm going to go sure. just take this chocolate from the shop. Oh, for guys, sure. sorry, I'm schizophrenic. Yeah. You can't have that. I'm feeling a little bit depressed today, Gerard. I'm going to go out and kill some students. Or rob a bank yeah, exactly. or just you know, do whatever the hell I feel like. No, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you are still responsible. Absolutely. And that has to be proven that the mental illness caused that behavior. And that's why people get sent for observation by the courts in these scenarios. Sure. Um, and then they go usually for 30 days to a psych- government psychiatric hospital has a forensic assessment capabilities and what they'll be looking at is during the actual crime itself is there any evidence that that your behaviors were controlled to put it that way by a mental illness okay and then secondly now that you have to stand trial are you sane in the sense of can you are your symptoms under control can you speak to your lawyer can you advise your lawyer what to do because again you can't put someone who's rampantly psychotic and delusional not in contact with reality they can't consult with their lawyer and say what they would like their lawyer to do and how they would like Absolutely. their case to be run. So that's what they're looking for when you send for mental observation. That okay. is what happened in this case. And and Shanae, any any mental mental yeah. conditions? So so yes. Yeah, so basically, what happened was the trial was split. Though they both wanted to plead guilty from the start. Okay. The the trials were split because Martin's obviously with the schizophrenia background. There was a lot more investigation into his mental health that had to take place so hers proceeded faster than his Um, and she pled guilty and they actually called um, psychiatrist Meryl Foster who also appeared in the Oscar Pistorius case on his testifying on his behalf um, who did an assessment to say that yes she is a psychopath and that allowed them to classify her as a dangerous criminal Um, now essentially what that means is that instead of for example getting a life sentence or a straight 25 year sentence or 20 year sentence essentially what happens is once you're classified as a dangerous criminal the judge says that in 20 years time you must come back to court and ideally the same judge if not a different judge convince the judge you've been rehabilitated and released on parole so essentially what it means correctional services has no ability to give her parole 
Okay. So 20 years time, boom, she's going to appear in court. She can obviously get her lawyers to get psychologists and whoever to testify, and they'll have to convince the judge. If not, the judge is going to say, right, another 10 years or 15 years or five years okay. again. So you kind of exclude correctional services from that parole process, which I'm sorry to say correctional services, but I do think that's a better option. Sure. Uh, I've been quite concerned by some of the people who've gotten parole uh, by okay. correctional services. Okay. So she got that no, almost sense. like what we call indeterminate sentence. Okay. And her case was dealt with quite quickly. And I testified there saying essentially that, you know, we should – um, treat her as serial, both of them as serial murderers, although they've only killed one victim. They themselves said they would have done it again. Yes. We have these trial runs that we saw leading up to the incident with testing on animals and trying, then thinking about a dog, then maybe trying to get a human and then getting hold of, of, of Michael Van Eck. So I said that we should treat them as serial murderers, even though they've only been convicted of one, um, one actual murder. Okay. Any, um, any sense of remorse or... Any sense of guilt about these crimes from the two of them? Not really. Uh, as I said, I, I got to interview him. Uh, no real expression of guilt. I was supposed to interview her. I was given permission to interview her. And literally, as I pulled up in front of the female prison um, in Kruenstadt to interview her, I got a phone call from the prosecutor who says, their lawyer just contacted me and says, now you can't interview her. And that was very yeah. unfortunate. I was really looking forward to that. Yeah. I still then compiled my report anyway and testified. Sure. Um, she did say in a guilty plea, I, I, I think it were words to the effect... I see now how much this has impacted on, on other people, uh, his family, everybody's angry with me kind of thing, and therefore I, I know now it's wrong. Mm. But that's kind of like saying, I've done something, I didn't know it was wrong, I can see everybody's upset now, therefore it must be wrong. It's again that lack of the inner emotional ability, mm. uh, which is probably why A she lack was classified. of empathy to yeah. the reality of the actual situation. Which is, I think, why the psychiatrist classified her as a psychopath, exactly. that she herself doesn't have those same emotions that we all have and she kind of has to read the read the people around her to gauge okay i've done something wrong because i can see people are looking at me with sort of daggers in their eyes therefore i've done something wrong not the inner i feel like i've done something i mean the the, the, just the the act of skinning somebody's face it's not a neutral body part if you like if you like it's not like if you skin somebody's back it's the back there aren't distinguishing features it's not a person in a face is a very much where the personality mm. of a person resides. Yeah, it's the embodiness of you as a human so being. So if she's not having the normal revulsion by skinning a face, then, you know, again, surely yeah. that, again, that would point at the fact that she's able yeah. to totally disassociate from yeah. any and, kind of empathy to the situation. And we also know that she's, as she's doing this, she's taking pictures with this on her cell phone. You can yeah. see her holding the skull halfway through wow. and taking a picture. So even that is like, hey, let sure. me document this. It's like you would document... People nowadays document their food that they're eating and put yeah. it on Facebook. And yeah, yeah. it's like that sort of whole social media kind of yeah. concept, yeah. although obviously she didn't post how, this. How are people with these kinds of violent fantasies managed then through their incarceration? You know, I, well, let me first by stop. I said, Sorry, so Martin yeah. was eventually a year late, about a year later convicted after they sorted out okay, the mental health fine. issues. He was not declared a dangerous criminal. Okay. He was he got a straight twenty year sentence. Okay. And probably because we didn't see the same violent fantasy all this these pictures and, and, and the, the things we spoke about, the writings and the drawings yeah. was, was her. Yeah. For him all we didn't really have that. Yeah. So he got a straight twenty year sentence. Now what are we gonna do with these people in prison? The problem is this is such a rare, unique thing that they've done. Yeah. We don't have this, these massive long-term, longitudinal studies on a large population of people who've done similar things to figure out what's the, what's the risk factors of them reoffending and what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. 
It's unfortunate, to be honest with you, the safest thing is to keep them in prison as long as possible. You know, Martin's, the reality is, no matter what we do with him, in 20 years, he, he will be released. We cannot keep him longer unless he commits another offense in prison that warrants a new sentence. Yeah. Um, he's going to be out. Uh, and and he, was, he was sentenced, I mean, this is already seven years ago. So yeah. he's going to be definitely out, yeah. without a doubt, in 13 years. And he might actually get paroled before then. In yeah. fact, in fact, I think nowadays you'd serve less than half. Um, he should be, therefore, in about two to three years, possibly coming up for his first parole hearing, and then they, if he doesn't get it, it'll happen every two years thereafter. Uh, would there be any kind of effort to continually monitor somebody like him? Once you've served your sentence, you, Correctional Services has absolutely no control over you. Okay. If you're on parole, we can impose conditions. You know, you must report, you must do this, you must be monitored, you're checked on, you can't drink, you can't do that. Sure. But once you hit your max sentence... You, we he can disappear no, back into the woodwork. We can't say you must be admitted to hospital. We can't extend unless you do something else again. We have nothing. He can do whatever the hell he wants. Sure. Um, so what's, hap- what's going to happen in the prison time? Well, I'd like to think that they're going to be seeing psychologists sure. who can hopefully see if they can get something right. Um, what? I don't, I don't even know what, what what kind of a therapy would you do. Yeah. Um, you know, as often said, with specifically with psychopaths, giving them therapy actually gives them better skills to become better psychopaths. So you really have to have people who know how to deal with these offenders. Yeah. Uh, as I said, he wasn't declared a psychopath. She was. Um, but, you know, my problem in correctional services, I would really want someone to work for a very long period, same person with this year. And I don't know, our turnaround rate of psychologists in prisons... It's just too high. I think it might be too high. And yeah. you're going to get the next one who starts, in a way, from scratch almost. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, and I, I just don't think anybody has a good therapy structure for how to deal with these individuals. Which is a little bit um, worrying. It um, is. Because um, we, when you identify anybody that's capable of this, you'd like to think that society has a way of kind of keeping track of these people. Yeah. Um, you know, if this was America, they would probably have gotten definitely life sentences. In America, life means life. Yeah. Um, in South Africa, life, people think life is only, t- only 25 years in South Africa. No, that's wrong. Life is life. But after normally 25 years, you will be come up, coming up for parole hearings. Okay, yeah. Now, again, that does not mean you will get parole, but sure. it means from 25 years and then every two years thereafter, you will have a parole hearing, which means you can come up for parole. If you get parole, you've still got your life sentence. You're just continuing it outside under certain conditions. Sure. If you mess up and it's serious enough, you will be pulled back into prison and continue to sit in prison with your life sentence until you become eligible again at some point yeah. for parole, and then you go out. So the life sentence always exists. The, the difference is where will you be serving it, outside in the community with restrictions or back in the prison, or in the prison environment. Yeah. But Martin's 20 years, that's it, he's out. Okay, but she would, like you say, because she is, has been identified as a psychopath. Dangerous criminal, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a different story. She's got to go back to a judge, convince the judge. Now, again, we hope yeah. that at that point they'll call experts to give evidence um, and there'll be a nice thorough debate about this in the courtroom with both sides arguing. Has there ever been an incidence with somebody being diagnosed as a psychopath? And going through a course of treatment and being diagnosed as no longer a psychopath. No, you can you you will never unpsychopath yourself. Okay, it's a personality disorder, and by definition, personality is always there. Okay, what you sometimes find is that as they get into their sort of fifties, sixties, they kind of burn out. Yes, yeah, so those urges diminish. So diminish. They'll probably still not be the nicest people on the planet, but sure. they they don't. Maybe just age, you know, no, get exactly. the urge to go out and be so horrible and, yeah. and violent. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean they might not still be devious and unpleasant people who would love to 
do whatever, but yeah. they might not be as active and florid. Yeah. Um, and again, is that just the aging process, you know, yeah. um, that we just calm down as older people? But you're never not going to be a psycho. You don't cure psychopathy, yeah. unfortunately. And, and I guess one of the realities of humanity of living on the planet is that um, we live in the yin and a yang. But mm. there is always good. Where there is good, there is evil. Yeah. And um, that's always going to be the case. Um, shame that guys like you are, uh, aren't at the cops still um, helping us to identify evil um, <laughs> as efficiently, as effectively as we could do. What are your takeouts from this case? Well, I mean, this was such a unique case. It's very rare. I've never had something like this happen. I've had cases where there's been mutilation, even skinning of people. But this is the first one where we really got to see the insight, the underlying fantasy, proof of that by means of what was on her phone, what was on the computer, the books they bought, etc., her writings, her drawings, that really kind of we can say here, this is what we're talking about when we say that fantasy exists, it causes, is part of what people, leading, people leading up to commit these types of murders. In a way, it's like a textbook example, and as I always like to say, sometimes they're called textbook example because you only read about them in textbooks. But this really, from a teaching point of view, for people, investigators, etc., and forensic psychologists, this is this will probably I'll be teaching about this case till the day I probably die because I don't think I'm going to come across another one that I've worked on um, that really illustrates what I'm trying to say when we talk about you know the, how this fantasy plays a role in violent crime and of course sometimes in, in in sexual crimes. Yeah, my take out for this is why I'm not more disturbed at seeing an actual skinned human face because <laughs> a skinned human face just doesn't. It doesn't seem like it just doesn't feel real. It's yeah. hard to kind of to to kind of really go, man. That's a that was a living, breathing human and, being. And I think that has a way that which is weird. I, I'm a bit disturbed by. It. <laughs> I think it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. I, I think because also how we're looking at this case, we're looking at this case from a process point of view, from start to finish, investigation. What happened to the offenders, and what does it mean? And and I think when you start to look at it, you can say investigatively or academically. It's not just this gory picture that you're looking at and you're grossed out by. You're seeing it in the context of where it came from, where it's going, and and the relevance. So for me, I get excited about the case from an academic, experiential, research point of view, as a professional, as a detective, as a a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And that makes it easier to to look at this and understand it. Um, Of course, if if your kids are displaying um, odd behaviors into the macabre, etc., don't panic. It doesn't mean that they're going to turn into a killer. But there are certain types of behaviors. Like if you do discover that your kid has skinned a cat, you should yeah. take them to speak to someone. Yeah, look, I always say, you know, <laughs> if your child is displaying violent behavior and aggressive behavior fairly regularly, mm. uh, that's beyond what we might expect for little kids who are learning about the world and, of course, sex- sexualized behavior, you know, you'd want that checked out by an appropriately trained yeah. ex- cool. uh, expert clinical psychologist who works with children of that age. Yeah. Um, again, it's not to mean they're going to become killers or that you've done something wrong as a parent, but you'd want that looked at and, you know, mm. getting a professional opinion yeah. about it to help that child, you know, get back on Fantasy is very normal, people. So carry on having your fantasies. But when you find that you are skinning and hanging a cat in your bedroom, seek help, please. So thank you very much, Gerard. Thank you for listening. Um, of course, go to YouTube profiler africa please do subscribe to the page um you can also of course listen to us as a podcast we're on itunes we're on spotify we're on soundcloud and you can uh, of course go and check out our social media pages uh, at profiler africa on instagram twitter and you'll see some great material from today's discussion there as well um, to give you some deeper insight into the stuff we've been talking about thank you gerard my pleasure thank you very much and pleasant dreams